0: Good morning, church. I wonder if I could have an usher grab me a water. Anybody willing to do that? Thanks. You know, in the first several centuries of the church, one of the biggest debates that we tend to forget about was centered on our, the church's relationship with the Old Testament, and specifically with the law. There were those who insisted that believers have to first become Jewish in order to worship the Jewish Messiah. They have to submit themselves to the law in order to worship Jesus. Acts 15, if you'll recall, is all about the very first church council. Church councils were a blessing. They were a place where the church came together and really dug into what the Lord was revealing. And Acts 15 is a recounting of that first church council. And the the topic was exactly this. Would Christians have to become Jewish first in order to worship Jesus? Would the whole of the law be binding upon them in the same way it was binding upon Israel? Thank you, Kyle. There were some who advocated for this and some who advocated against it, like Paul and his allies. On the other side of the historical debate were those who insisted that Christians should detach themselves completely from Judaism, from the Old Testament altogether. There was an early false teacher. His name was Marcion, and he tried to remove everything Jewish from the scriptures in order to have some type of non-Jewish Christianity. But both of those extreme views were incorrect. They were false, false teachings. We'd call them heresies, even. They distort the gospel and what Jesus taught. And today, we come to a text that deals exactly with this Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Jesus himself tackles the topic head on. What is Jesus' relationship with the law, and what claim does the law have on us in light of that? Let's find out. Stand together with me and, and let's read Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. This is the word of the Lord. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, Lord, we need your help this morning. We pray that you will give us clear insight and wisdom into your word. We pray for the the help that we need to apply it to our lives. We are hungry for your word today, Lord Jesus. We come to it humbly and we ask for wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. So coming right off of the heels of the Beatitudes and a conversation of the Christian witness... We may be surprised to see Jesus talking about the law, but this passage, verses 17 through 20, sets up the rest of chapter 5, and really the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, without this little section, we couldn't possibly hope to understand verses 21 through 48 To its fullest extent. The Beatitudes, if you'll turn back there with me, and you'll recall with me, the Beatitudes are the norms of the kingdom. I've probably said that 15 or 16 times in the last several weeks. They're the norms of the kingdom. And the metaphors of salt and light, as we saw last week in 13 through 16, are the public extension of those norms. We call that the Christian witness. Salt and light, remember, were two sides of the same coin of the Christian witness. And in the sermon this week, the the two first sections that we saw in the Sermon on the Mount on those topics are really the preface for the rest of the sermon. They're the the preface. And now, these verses are the introduction to the rest of chapter 5. That's kind of the outline, the structure so far, of the sermon. We've had the preface, the introductory material for the whole thing, and now Jesus is introducing us to the rest of chapter 5. Because so we have the kingdom manifesto in verses 1 through 16, Jesus shrunk it down into a bite, bite-sized chunk. And now 17 through 20, we need it to understand the rest. So I want I've said that about five different ways so far, And that's so that we can all be on the same page. We can't go any further until we have 17 through 20 in our pocket. We have to understand what Jesus is saying. It's foundational. Jesus fulfills the law. Jesus fulfills the law. In verses 17 through 18, we find this principle. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus has come to fulfill the law. That's the major principle that we need to have in hand before we move forward. And he's going to explain what that means. Jesus fulfills the law. The law. Let's take 17 and 18 bit by bit here. In the first sentence, Jesus says, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now that seems pretty clear, right? That seems pretty clear. It was not Jesus' mission. He did not come to us in his incarnation to get rid of, to abolish the law or the prophets. And by law and prophets, saying both at the same time, Jesus is saying the whole Old Testament He's referring to all of the scriptures, all of the Old Testament. You'll remember, they didn't call the Old Testament the Old Testament when Jesus is speaking, right? It was simply the scriptures, okay? The law and the prophets. It was not Jesus' mission to abolish those. This word that we translate as abolish means to destroy or remove or even to unyoke something. Jesus did not come to remove, destroy, unyoke, or abolish the law. So that should give us pause, right? Apparently, Jesus had people around him who were thinking that he may have come to get rid of the law, to remove it, to abolish it. And at this point, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus hasn't had any run-ins with people who were accusing him of breaking the Mosaic law. Law. But in the Gospel of Mark, that happens almost immediately. In fact, in the very first chapter of Mark, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, and in the second chapter, he's challenged because his disciples are picking grains as they're walking through a field, and he calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus had probably encountered this accusation before he starts the Sermon on the Mount. He probably encountered it during the events of chapter four, as you'll recall, while he's healing people and going throughout the land. Jesus wants to make it abundantly clear for those who were confused. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, he says. Now, we're usually quick to move on But it's worth focusing on this for a second. The law and the prophets, the whole Old Testament, was not made null, was not destroyed or removed by Jesus. Remember, Jesus is God, and God gave Israel the law, and God is revealed in the entirety of the Old Testament. Jesus is not against the Mosaic law. He's not against the Old Testament or the prophets or the wisdom books or anything else you find in the Old Testament. As God, He is the ultimate author of those books. So to suppose that Jesus would abolish the Old Testament betrays a misunderstanding of who God is. God does not contradict Himself, He does not change what He says. His word will not pass away. Jesus says, exactly that. Jesus did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but he goes on. He says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So he didn't come to abolish the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. And on this one point, this, this one word rests the right understanding of the rest of the chapter And really, the right understanding of the rest of the whole Sermon on the Mount, and really, the right understanding of why Jesus came in the first place. Jesus fulfills the law. Fair enough. We can say that all we want, right? But what in the world does it mean that Jesus fulfilled the law? Now, this is where we're really going to get into it, okay? So buckle up, stay with me. One historical understanding of this fulfillment was put forward by the great Christian theologian, Thomas Aquinas. He said that there were really three aspects of the Mosaic law. The the law that we find in the first five books of the Bible. The civil law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law. So first, he taught that the church was not a nation like Israel... And so it's not under any obligation to follow the civil law of Moses. These would be the laws concerning who was governing who and judging and peacekeeping and things like that. Then he taught that Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law. These would be the laws concerning sacrifice and temple worship and so on. So now we're under no obligation to offer sacrifices. That's the aspect of the law that Aquinas... Believed Jesus fulfilled. And then finally, he taught that the moral law, which was encapsulated in the Ten Commandments, was every Christian's obligation to follow. So the law that Jesus did not abolish, thought Aquinas, was the moral law not to steal, not to murder, and so on and so forth. Now, this understanding of this passage is helpful, this breakdown. There are certainly aspects of the law of Moses that are different from others, that govern certain things. But I think there are a few problems with what Thomas Aquinas thought. First, Jesus is talking about the whole Old Testament here, not just about the law of Moses found in those first five books of the Bible. Second, his divisions of the law between civil, ceremonial, and moral, they're not super clear-cut in the Scriptures themselves. In fact, it seems like every law has a component of each of those three things. Or at the very least, every law has a moral component. Let me give you an example. If you broke a ceremonial law, like the sons of Aaron, who offered strange fire in the tabernacle, you were put to death. They were put to death. That had a moral consequence. Third, all of this is foreign to Matthew. He doesn't include any of these divisions here. Jesus makes none of the divisions in the rest of his sermon. And Matthew doesn't have it in his gospel. So it's best to stick with the text itself. That's a good rule of thumb. Okay, so if it's not what Thomas Aquinas thought, this clear cut division, then what does it mean for Jesus to fulfill the Old Testament? It means this the Old Testament is fulfilled because the one to which it pointed had arrived. Let me say that again. The Old Testament is fulfilled because the one to which it pointed had arrived. The whole Old Testament pointed to Jesus. It anticipated and foretold of him. Every part of the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. And most often this happened typologically. And we, we talked about types and typology all the way back in chapter 2, if you'll remember. But as a refresher, to be a type of something means that it has a portion of a quality that something else has in the fullest way. Let me give you an example. David is a type of Christ because he was a good king. But he pointed to Jesus, the archetype, because he's the king of kings. Moses is a type of Christ because he revealed God to the people. But he pointed to Jesus, who would reveal God in the greatest possible way. These are examples of types. The Old Testament points to and anticipates its fulfillness in Jesus. In types, in prophecies, in every way. And now, in history, in truth, Jesus had arrived. Far from abolishing the law, he set it in place to point to him. The Mosaic law helpfully taught the people of Israel how to maintain the presence of God among them. But ultimately, as its final end, as its biggest point... It pointed to Jesus. Jesus was the point of the Old Testament. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. That's why Jesus goes on to say here in verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus says, not an iota, not a dot. In other words, not the smallest letter or the tiniest pen stroke, will disappear or change in the law until all is accomplished. And that is true. Nothing of the law will pass away because the law will always point to Jesus. That's its purpose. That's how he set it up. Jesus is not unheralded, unforeseen, or unanticipated. The whole Old Testament points to him. That's been Matthew's whole project since the beginning of the gospel, if you'll recall. He's constantly bringing up how Jesus fulfills certain texts and certain types of the Old Testament. So for Jesus to say he fulfills the law is 100% 100 true and backed up by the evidence Matthew's already used. So what does it mean for all to be accomplished? He says it won't pass away until then. Does it mean that the law will go away someday? when Jesus finally returns? In one sense, yes. And in another sense, no. The statement until heaven and earth passes away was basically a common way of saying never. It was like us saying when hell freezes over. And that's true because God's word never passes away. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 23, heaven and earth will pass away. There's that same statement. But my words will not pass away. Of course, the Old Testament is the word of God. So it will not pass away. But in another sense, at the culmination of history, when Jesus returns and makes all things new, when he writes every wrong and sin is destroyed, we won't need to be told what's right and wrong anymore. That will be written on our hearts. When Jesus returns and establishes his earthly kingdom, sin will be removed. So in a very practical sense, we won't need the law. We'll have Christ himself. But we'll always have the law because it will always point to Jesus as its fulfillment. That's the point of the Old Testament. Now, wrapped up in this whole conversation, as I've already noted at the very beginning, is this question. What part of the Mosaic law, if any, are we as Christians obligated to follow? That's the main question we have. We have the principle, Jesus fulfills the law. He doesn't abolish it. He doesn't abolish the Old Testament. But that doesn't mean Jesus expects his disciples to follow the law in the same way Israel was expected to follow the law. In fact, Because Jesus fulfills the law, the law's role has fundamentally changed. It doesn't go away, but the role has changed. So verses 19 and 20 give us a deeper meaning and a fuller application of this principle. The principle, again, is Jesus has fulfilled the law. And because he's done that, Jesus gives us, first, a better understanding He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus mentions relaxing commandments. So now he has in mind something more specific, right? Commandments, probably the Mosaic law. As we've seen, everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. And that includes every commandment in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. What does that mean then for the law? Well, as Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So far be it from us to relax the good commandments of God. In verse 19, Jesus is directly addressing those that would see him do away with the law because they viewed it as oppressive in some sense. But no, Jesus says, the commandments will not be relaxed by his true followers. In fact, he says, those who relax any of these commandments will be least in the kingdom of heaven. If you want to be great in the kingdom, on the other hand, you will not only teach them, but do them in their fullness. The law is the Word of God, and the Word of God never fails. So at this point, maybe you feel a little perplexed. Maybe you feel a little frustrated. And that's okay. I want to understand, and we want to understand collectively, Jesus' words here, at face value, right? We want to understand him at face value. So he's intentionally, for us, introducing some tension. And it doesn't feel very good. And our tendency as human beings is to quickly resolve that tension. Our tendency is to brush aside, really, the commandments of God and get to the freedom. That was the first great sin of Adam and Eve. They determined that the prohibition that God had put in place was not to be followed, and that the word of God, as stated, was not to be obeyed. They didn't think it was good for them, that it was oppressive, meant to hold them down. So when Jesus himself tells us, That he in no way plans to abolish the law, and that those who hope to be great in the kingdom will not relax the law, we feel tension. We feel uncomfortable. Let's feel that together. It's okay, welcome it. Open your heart to a little tension, a little holy tension. Do you measure up to what Jesus is saying here? Are we quick to relax the law? Are we a people too reliant upon cheap grace? Do we let sin abound so that grace may abound, as Paul says? Jesus is intentionally battling against the tendency of all people to find an excuse to live unrighteously. In the church... Throughout time, we've called this false teaching by a very big word, antinomianism. It's a $10 word that you should know. That describes somebody outside or set against the law. Those who line up on on that side of the playing field are those who believe that God has to forgive them. And that they can really do whatever they want now because God's grace is for them. But Jesus says to us with very plain language that the commandments of God will not be abolished and that if we relax Him, we relax them, we will be least in the kingdom. And of course, to be considered least in a king's kingdom is tantamount to saying you're his enemy. If you are thought of as the least person in a king's kingdom, you're not on his good side. On the Christian path set before us, there are two wrong choices. We might say that with your imagination, close your eyes if you have to, view yourself on a path. On either side of this path, there's a deep pit. On the left side of the path before you, a narrow path, is the deep pit of cheap grace, antinomianism. When we fall into this pit, we presume upon the goodness of God. We presume upon the love of God. We create of him an idol who must forgive, who must show mercy. We make little of our sin and we spit upon God's law, which is his word. So for those who are leaning a little to their left today, toward presumption and cheap grace, Jesus says with Paul that the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. And we must agree. This is the word of God. So now that we all agree that the law is good, we can all take a breath. I'm not suggesting, as the false teachers did in Acts chapter 15, that we have to first become Jewish in order to properly worship Jesus. It was agreed upon real quick in Christian history that the church was going to look a lot different than, than the nation of Israel. And in Acts 15, the council concluded that Gentiles would not have to follow the whole Mosaic law as if they were Israelites. The rest of Scripture, which is also the Word of God, the rest of the New Testament, bears out the fact that Jesus must not be calling us to a civil observance of the law of Moses. So then, what does it mean that we shouldn't relax any law and that the law will never be abolished? Well, remember, Jesus fulfills the law, and not just theoretically. We must understand the main purpose of the law in the first place. We might be tempted to misunderstand that the main purpose, the ultimate purpose of the law, was simply to guide the nation of Israel into right worship of God. That would make us do one of two things. Either hate the law or follow it incorrectly. And while that is certainly one of the main points of the law as given originally, it wasn't the ultimate point. The ultimate point of the law, like the rest of the Old Testament, was to point to Jesus. Jesus fulfills the law. He's the main point of the law. And now Jesus says he's not come to abolish that which points to him. He has come to bring it into fruition, to fulfill it. To say it differently, Jesus has come to fill up the law. So if we're really going to follow the commands of the law, we have to better understand the law. Jesus gives us this better understanding. The law is not merely a set of rules. Outlining a socio-religious nation state like Israel. It's the command of God which is filled up by Christ himself. So when Jesus says not to relax any single command, he's not saying, he's saying not to relax any command of the law which he gave and which he alone has the right to interpret. Let me say that again. When Jesus says not to relax any single command, he's saying not to relax any command of the law which he himself gave, in which he alone has the right to interpret. Jesus is going to do exactly that through the rest of chapter 5. He's going to give us a deeper understanding of the law himself. The one who originally gave it is going to interpret it correctly that's really cool. It's not a new law. It's the law fulfilled. So you have to stay tuned to find out how the law is exactly fulfilled by Jesus in what he says. He gives us a better understanding of the law. He will as the weeks go by. And second, Jesus gives us a deeper righteousness. Jesus says in verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Some might be tempted to understand this passage in an ironic or snarky way. The scribes and Pharisees weren't very righteous, so that won't be too hard. But that's, Not at all what Jesus is meaning here. The scribes and the Pharisees were the most meticulous law keepers there were. They had a specific count of how many laws every Jew was supposed to follow. A very specific number. And they broke down the many possible ways that a commandment within the law could be broken. And then they made more laws to make sure those big laws wouldn't be broken. And lest we think them simple-minded or mean hypocrites who wished harm on their people, we must remember that God's presence left the temple and the people of God were exiled because they were unable to keep the covenant outlined by the law. God left them and threw them out of their land Because they didn't keep their side of the covenant. So the scribes and Pharisees were ultimately concerned with this. That that would never happen again. So they were very careful. They widened the law to such an extent that for Jesus to say, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. For him to say that just sounded like an impossible task. And here's the thing. It was. No one in their right mind would ever think it could be possible to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. So why would Jesus lay this burden on his followers? Is Jesus making to, looking to make little baby legalists who are more scrupulous than those who you remember tithed even of their fresh herbs? No, that's not his goal. In fact, on this Christian path we've already talked about, on this Christian path, there's another dangerous pit on the right side. Antinomianism is on the left, and on the right is the pit of legalism. This is the opposite extreme. With all of Jesus' talk about the commandments not being relaxed and the law not being abolished, we might be tempted to think that it's ultimately by works that we're saved. Jesus isn't relaxing anything, so we have to be really, 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 really good. Legalism is the assumption that if we do what is right, we have to be rewarded. This is the failure of every other major world religion, And it's a constant temptation for every Christian. If I just rely upon my own ability, I'll earn the wage of salvation. But this, too, on the right, this pit, is a pit leading straight to hell. Jesus is not saying that we must have our righteousness wider than the scribes and Pharisees, that would be impossible. We couldn't accomplish that. What he's saying is that the Pharisees and the scribes have it all wrong. It's not how wide your righteousness is. That's not what matters. It's how deep. God didn't leave the temple because the people of Israel didn't have their law wide enough. It's because it wasn't affecting their heart. Jesus is calling us to a deeper righteousness. God is concerned with the heart. And he'll go on to teach that very thing in chapter 15. And there he says, Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. The Pharisees and the scribes had it all wrong. They thought the law had to do with what was on the outside. When in reality, the law had to do with what's on the inside. What comes out of a person's heart. Jesus will go on to say this in Matthew 23 to the scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you hypocrites for you're like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. God is not concerned with your mere outward appearance. God's people are not supposed to be like Pretty painted graves. They're supposed to be resurrected. Resurrected people, inside and out. Your righteousness, if kept through a wide observance of the law, will never exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. We need a deeper righteousness, a righteousness that cannot be had from merely following the rules. In fact, if following the rules is all we're concerned about, even if we do a really great job, we'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. God's not calling us to keep score, as if righteousness were some type of game to be won against the scribes and Pharisees. No, righteousness, true righteousness, must be given. You remember, I hope, one of the main points of Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are hungering and thirsting for Jesus. If we want to stay on the right Christian path and avoid the pits of antinomianism on the left and legalism on the right, then our only chance is if we trust in Jesus Christ who is your righteousness. He is the fulfillment of the law. Through him, through the lens of Christ, we can properly understand the law for what it's for and what it is. It points to him. It shows our lack of righteousness when we read it. And it draws us to the throne of grace where we desire to be made right before God. And so Paul says in Romans 3.21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The law is not the path to righteousness needed to enter the kingdom of heaven. You can't get there through the law. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Paul says that the law and the prophets, the same expression Jesus used here, bear witness to the righteousness of God. But it is not righteousness itself. In other words, they outline what righteousness actually looks like. Yet they can't give it to us. The law shines a light upon our dark hearts which are full of sin. It calls on us to rely upon the one who fulfilled the law to give us the righteousness that we so dearly crave. We need the whole counsel of God's word to understand what he requires of righteousness. We cannot detach or unhitch from the Old Testament. It points to Christ, and we need it to point to Christ. We need to spend a lot of time meditating upon the law of Moses. Because it shows us what Jesus actually fulfilled for you. When we read it, we should be seeking out Jesus. We should be reading it in light of Jesus Who brings it to fruition? Who fills it up? Let's return to the pragmatic question on all our minds. After considering all of this. What is our obligation to this law? Well, simply put. Where Jesus changes the role of the law. Like with dietary restrictions and civil laws and things like that. We're called to love it. As it points to Him, but we are free from an obligation to observe it strictly. Everybody has Christian freedom to, to do what the Spirit leads them to do there, but we are free from placing an obligation on others. The rest of the New Testament bears that out. But where Jesus and the rest of the New Testament, New Testament authors deepen the law, as we'll see with the rest of Matthew 5, we are under full obligation to follow it. Let me say it in a shorter way. Where Jesus changes the role of the law, we have Christian freedom. And where Jesus deepens the law, like we'll see, we are under full obligation to follow. Jesus interprets the law. He is the fulfillment of the law, the original author of the law. And so we do what he says. Amen? Jesus is not about to give us a list of impossible laws to follow in Matthew 5. He's going to give us the right understanding of the law. Principles to apply to the rest of it. He's going to show that the heart, our motivations, our desires, our will, are ultimately what drive our sin. He'll repeat a phrase several times. You have heard it said. But then he'll go on later to say, but I say to you, and I'm excited to dig into those statements because it's there that Jesus rejects the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees who try to widen the law to include other stuff that don't matter and where he deepens it and convicts us because we think we've kept it and we've really done a poor job. We, meet, we need to be mindful, really. We need to be mindful to stay on the right path. This path of the Christian walk, our lives envisioned as a journey, headed toward Jesus, not stumbling to the left into the pit of antinomianism and cheap, presumptuous grace. We must take our sins seriously. We must love the law like Paul in the book of Romans encourages us to love it because it points to Jesus. And we must follow the commands of Christ. But we must be careful not to fall into the pit on the right, which is legalism. Legalism tempts us to think that we can achieve righteousness by ourselves, that it's a game we can win. But no, we have to rely upon the righteousness of Christ we will not exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees if we try to play that game. We need grace. We need this balance. It's a balance. We need to seek to live righteous, holy lives apart from the world to follow the commands of Christ that he lays before us. But we need to understand that we can't do that unless. We first experience the grace of God. So to live a righteous life, you have to have the cross. The cross comes first. If you're trying to live a righteous life and you don't have the cross, you're not going to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees who are not in the kingdom of heaven. What hope do you have? You have to go to the cross first. Then comes righteousness given. Amen? Do you need the cross this morning? That's the first step. To stay in this balance on the Christian uh, path, you have to first have the cross of Jesus Christ where he died for your sins. Do you have his cross? Let's ask the Lord for that grace. Even if you're sure that you have it, ask for it again today. We need more and more grace every day to remember these things. We're constantly tempted to fall into the left or to the right. And it's by God's grace, a renewed mind, that we can stay on the straight and narrow path set before us. Let's pray for that now. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you you make this possible. That you've not come to lay a heavy burden on us, but you tell us that your yoke is easy and that your burden is light. You've come to bring us peace. We, We thank you that you have met the righteous demands of the law for us, that you fulfill the law. But Lord, thank you for calling us to live lives that are worthy of that. Lord, that's what I ask for now, for the grace for those here to to live righteous lives in light of your love, in light of the grace they've received. Lord, now as we continue our worship, we pray that this would be heavy on our hearts, your goodness and your grace, Lord, your cross, where you nailed our sins, where they were laid down. As your word said, we, we have died to sin, but we've been made alive to Christ. Thank you, Lord. We thank you and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.